Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. Welcome back to episode 89 of the Built on Purpose podcast brought to you by Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Scouts, where we find purpose aligned and performance proven leaders. Speaking of, today our guest is Dr. Britt Andriata. Dr. Britt Andriata is an internationally recognized thought leader who creates brain science-based solutions for today's challenges. As CEO of Brain Aware Training, Inc., Britt Andriata draws on her unique background in leadership, neuroscience, psychology, and learning to unlock the best in people and organizations. Dr. Britt is the formal chief learning officer for lynda.com, which is now LinkedIn Learning. She is the author of four books, Wired to Grow, Wired to Resist, Wired to Connect, and most recently, Wired to Become, which was just released on May 21st. Dr. Britt, welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast. Thank you, Max. I'm excited to talk to you today and connect with your listeners. Awesome. Well, first off, congrats on publishing your fourth book, or is there more than that? Uh, I've written a couple more than that, but the, this is the series, and it felt like a really nice capstone to this journey I've been taking people on. Awesome. Well, I cannot, like I said, we had chatted a little bit before we started recording. I am extremely excited to have this conversation. There's so much uh, foundationally that we started Y Scouts on, and uh, there's a lot of research and stuff that you've continued to move forward that it'll be awesome to hear. But the thing I want to start out with, um, you know, like I said in the the intro, she just released the book. It might it was it on May twenty first or the twenty third. I don't know why I've got those two dates in my head. It was the twenty first is when it 21st. came out. Okay, so that was right. So May twenty first. So everybody that's listening, uh, you can get her book um, anywhere online. I assume Amazon and anywhere you normally buy books. But I would encourage you to get it. I was lucky enough to get a, a copy ahead of time, and uh, you guys are in for a treat. So. But first off, what prompted you uh, to to write Wired to Become at this time? You know, I had started working on it back in 20, 2016 or 2017. And because I could, I could sense that, you know, things were shifting. We were seeing some evidence of like a purpose-driven economy. We were seeing kind of this rise in consciousness. And then the pandemic happened, of course. And kind of I like everybody else had to pivot to parenting in that world and working from home. Um, but I'm glad, I'm glad because the pandemic really accelerated and further shifted this trajectory we were already on. And so I wanted, as I saw it kind of unfolding, particularly with the great resignation that happened in in 2021 and 2022, I was like, ah, yeah, it's really, it's really accelerating this thing. So that's when I dug back into the research and um, I'm glad I waited because it was a very different book than I would have written before. Um, you know, we are changed. We have lived through a very traumatic experience. We have faced our mortality. And if you know any cancer survivors, you know that that doing that makes you really question your values and your priorities. And, and you know, when someone faces cancer, that's happening in their household. But we literally had it happening in every household simultaneously around the world. And so it's it's a different world now and one that I think is going to be pretty exciting in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, is there anything for, uh, that you would share? And, and when I was, when we were recording these podcasts, like right during the pandemic and after, I was always focusing on 
you know, the positive side? Like what was one thing that you remember that you were willing to share um, that you learned like through the pandemic? I mean, obviously there's a lot of stuff that you've written about, but personally, I'm, what, what, what was one of the things that like stands out as a blessing if there was such a thing from the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, I, I think for, I mean, for me personally, it gave me time to really deepen a connection with my own family members, the ones I was stuck in the house with, as well as, um, you know, my, my parents, uh, realizing that they may not be around for a long time. And so after kind of the pandemic eased, I ended up helping my dad write his memoir about his time in the ski industry. Um, and just spending all that time interviewing him and, and hearing about his stories, it just gave me a real appreciation for, for people that, you know, we sometimes can take for granted because we're all so busy. Um, it also changed my relationship to busyness before I was the kind of person that was really scheduled and running around and, and, and that all got shifted in a dramatic way. It was hard to get used to at first, but I've been very intentional about not returning to being overscheduled, um, realizing that downtime is important and baking sourdough bread and <laughs> all the things that we binge watching some good shows, all the things that we did during the pandemic. Um, I think all of those things were really important. And then the third thing was, and I think everyone had this experience, you know, we got, we got a break, not only from the nice people in our lives, but we got a break from the toxic people in our lives. And so I, you know, I made some intentional choices to not reconnect with certain people after the pandemic eased. And I think all of us benefit from that kind of assessment and intentional choice uh, in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what comes to mind when you talk about that is, uh, you know, everybody talks about they love flexibility. But I think if you really talk to the, and I did this with my team recently, and the top two things they want is flexibility and connectivity and connection. And they kind of, uh, you know, they, they, they kind of battle each other a little bit. But the one thing I remember about, you know, this now that we, we started kind of a hybrid model, even before the pandemic started, just because we saw talent spread throughout the U.S. And we decided that we wanted to work with the most talented people and not have to relocate people. Um, but there's there's an element that I talk to a lot of our clients, and I'm sure you do yours where that toxicity of like, you know, some, a person that just gives another person a dirty look every day when they walk into work. Well, when it's, you know, when you're working virtual, you don't have that it's removed. So I think that's, you know, from an organizational standpoint, I think most leaders, when you point that out, they're like, Oh yeah. I remember when I have to deal with, you know, the caddy stuff, uh, you know, between two people, but, um, well, let's, let me jump back. I I think I add something to that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The thing I want to add to that is that, and the numbers are really borne out, that particularly people who oftentimes are on the receiving end of microaggressions and micro insensitivities, like women, uh, LGBT folks, people of color, they particularly appreciated that break from toxicity and felt much more safe in their environment. Now they were not at the whim of other people's actions quite so much. And we definitely saw in the Great Resignation, those particular populations changing jobs at higher levels, because when it was time to go back, they were like, I can't go back into that environment. I can't, I can't do that to myself. So I think it's a real lesson for leaders that you also need to look at what your culture really is. And, and if you are really handling it and creating a truly inclusive culture. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, thank you for adding that. Uh, what do you, like, I, I, uh, I loved 
I love how you laid the book out, by the way. And and I haven't I haven't finished it yet. And the, the, for me, the best is at the end where I started to talk about how it relates to kind of more organizationally. Um, but you talked about the difference between happiness and purpose. And I thought it was, uh, you know, being, you know, the first purpose-based leadership search firm or part of this first purpose-based uh, leadership search firm. This is a really good distinction for people to understand. So let us let our audience know, you know, how you distinguish between happiness and purpose. Great. Well, I mean, it was originally distinguished by some of the early Greek scholars um, who I identified kind of these two types of well-being. They called happiness hedonic well-being, and that focuses on kind of that pleasure attainment, that immediate little moment of joy you have from eating a good piece of chocolate cake or laughing with a friend. Um, it's really kind of that having a good time feeling, right? And because it's focused on your own pleasure, it's very self-focused, self-enhancing. And all that's good. We need happiness in our life. Um, also, neurologically, happiness and purpose show up differently on MRI scans. So we know that they're actually biologically different, um, not only just that we can feel them, but they truly are different in terms of how our body experiences them. Purpose or meaning is known as eudaimonic well-being, and that results from striving toward meaning, purpose, your own self-realization or your potential. So that's more of a long-term experience, right? We don't just grab that in a moment <laughs> with a bite of chocolate cake, right? You could be working toward that over time, but it leads to a much deeper sense of fulfillment or satisfaction. Um, it, it's always focused on others in some way. So it's self-transcending. So it's how you're of service, how you help people, the kind of work you want to do to make a difference in the world. Um, and so if we think about happiness as having a good time, purpose or meaning is living a good life. And what I think is really interesting too is that, and this came out in the research as well, is that sometimes people hear the word purpose and they're like, oh, that I can only have that if I have a really important job or I'm working on a really worthy cause. And that's not the case. You know, being of service can be you just love creating really delicious meals, right? And the people who get to eat those meals really experience something that's meaningful to them. Maybe being of purpose is tackling a really big social issue and you're spending a lot of time being an activist around that or donating time and energy to that. So uh, I think it's important that we we loosen up our definition of purpose. It's it's to the benefit of others in some way, but it's not always some really big uh, cause that we would see on the news. Got it. Yeah. And for those of you that are just tuning in, uh, she just released a book uh, called Wired to Become on May 21st. And so that's kind of what we're talking a little bit about here and then just in general. But I just kind of wanted to bring that up for anybody that's uh, missed any of this. but. Another thing that I, and I don't want to get too far in the book because I want people to be able to read, <laughs> but I, there are some things I'll, I'll dig into, um, which hopefully won't reveal too much. And by the way, the book is written in such an, a great, it has great diagrams and like, there's so much stuff in there that I like that's super practical to really understand, uh, what you're talking about. And then you're an exceptional writer. So the combination between the two and referencing other work that is, you know, has been done before. Uh, I know, you know, in there, you reference uh, Aaron Hurst. We, we have worked together with him with Imperative. And so there's just a lot of really, there's a, you've done an incredible job and, and really pulled in a lot of what we've already learned from some really good sources and then added your own uh, twist, which is amazing. Um, 
one of the things you, you, you talk about is differentiating purpose with a capital P and yep. purpose in life. Like, let's talk about that. That was, that, that was actually kind of new to me. I mean, that, that just the way you distinguish it, I've never distinguished it that way. Yeah. So, um, and again, this, one, one of the things that I'm kind of, my, my, my superpower is synthesizing, um, and looking at a lot of different disciplines and a lot of different experts. And then all of a sudden I start to see the patterns and the connection points and realizing, oh, these two things reinforce each other. So I really like to bring in the latest research that other folks have done, but then kind of the twist I add to it is, um, really starting to connect the dots and letting that then develop into a model or a strategy that we can all use. So the, the purpose with the big P and purpose with the little P, um, you know, having a purpose can be as simple as having a goal, right? But, you know, trying to get something done today, you may have a purpose for your day that you got to get groceries, you got to make that phone call, etc. Um, purpose with a capital P is really that intention to serve or benefit others in some way. And it's always driven by our core values. So it's going to be the things that give you greater satisfaction or make you feel uh, like you're contributing to something meaningful. And then in the research, how scientists study this stuff is they use a phrase called purpose in life, right? And so there's actually an assessment that they can have people take. And purpose in life is the desire and effort people put forth to accomplish their goals, make significant contributions to society, and maintaining a meaningful existence. So you can take a group of people and have them complete the purpose in life assessment. And the higher your score is, the stronger you have around some of these these things that help drive your life. And the the research is really profound. I mean, purpose in life, even just a small change in your score can yield to better health, longer life, greater happiness, and greater meaning in your life. And so it turns out purpose in life is really important. We need it. Um but sometimes it shifts for people over time. So so one of the things that was really profound for me as we were in the middle of the pandemic, I work a lot with healthcare organizations and I still do, is that you have an entire workforce, true for teachers too, who get deep meaning and purpose for their work, right? They're being of service and oftentimes facing challenging circumstances because they care so much. Well, you can burn yourself out by having too much of that, right? And we did that to healthcare workers. They were literally saving lives all day, every day for months on end without break. Teachers were pulling off heroic acts, trying to keep these kids in the classroom, in the virtual classroom. Um, but when you have more meaning than your body can handle, you can burn out very quickly. And we're now seeing the effects of that. In fact, education and healthcare are the two most um, burned out workforces right now, and we're seeing them leave in droves. So purpose is important, but you also have to find that balance. And so sometimes people can lean um, a little too hard into their purpose and not maintain some balance of happiness. Or in this case, the pandemic forced a group of workers to do that. And there, there was no choice but to just lean in. But now we're, we're seeing the effects of it. Yeah. Would you include uh, law enforcement in that group? You know, uh, yes, regularly, they didn't play as strong of a role during the pandemic. We were all staying home. So they actually got a little bit of break from some of the things that they normally have to do. But certainly first responders in general can can be a group that cares very well, very strongly about being of service, but they can get burned out because of the intensity of the work um, if they're not intentionally balancing themselves. The other group that can do this is, is folks who care very deeply about critical 
societal issues. For example, social workers who work with children, right? It's really hard for them to take a break because all they think about is their cases and the kids who need their support. And yet, if you if you're only leaning into that really heavy work and not balancing it, um, you can burn yourself out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I met a uh, I met an anesthesiologist uh, in a uh, peer group, and he uh, really enjoyed the work, but it burnt him out. Like he, you know, he got to a point where he felt like he was, uh, the, in his words, was almost serving like in battle. And mm-hmm. you're battling and sometimes the person wakes up and sometimes they don't. And he experienced the times when they don't too often where he just decided that that wasn't what he wanted to do. And this may be, I won't get too far off topic here, but he started to, uh, he started to uh, experiment with uh, ketamine and mm-hmm. he actually started a ketamine practice, which is in Arizona. I won't get into the details, but He's helping people that, you know, have some serious issues that are, you know, in some cases suicidal. And now he's able to use, you know, his ability and he is really enjoying what he's doing compared to what he set out to do, which I think, and I use that because it's a really non-traditional example of like what you can do to leverage what you already know and and take it down. Now, some people might say, hey, you know, they don't necessarily believe in ketamine treatments, but it's just an example that I want to throw out there because this guy is loving his life more than ever. And it was uh, interesting. And, you know, going back to um, uh, the connection between finding purpose and meaning and physical and mental health, I want to like, you know, talk a little bit more about that. I think it's so important because, you know, for me personally, and for the people that know me well, um, you know, I I go to some pretty uh, extreme measures to physically and mentally stay fit. And, uh, so when you talk about like one thing, you know, like this, this is a fundamental thing. You don't have to do, I mean, you have to work at it, but it's something that can really change uh, as far as physical and mental health. But talk about like, is there any statistics that stand out the most for you or anything that, you know, would help kind of uh, give give a better example of uh, like how much uh, purpose drives mental and physical health? Yeah. I'm going to come at this two ways. So I'm going to back up a minute and connect it to burnout, and then okay, I'll get yeah. into some other details. So with burnout, I want people to think about three things. We burn out if we overwork and underrest. So, you know, we might have to dig deep and do that for a project or something. But if you're not taking your evenings and your weekends and you're taking your vacation, even if you love the work, you're going to go into burnout because you're overworking and underplaying or underresting. So all of us have to pay attention to that balance. For healthcare workers and teachers, it got, got really messed up in the pandemic. The second thing that we have to pay attention to is how intense our job is versus how much we want. So typically for healthcare workers, that balance between I can help people versus um, the balance of uh, how much I want to help people versus how much I'm being asked to, right? So there's this how much you're being asked, the kind of the flow idea of it. So for healthcare workers, their normal workloads of dealing with regular healthcare and regular emergencies is probably in balance with how much purpose they want from that. In the pandemic, that just went into overdrive. So um, you can have a job that is too stressful because there's too much purpose there and for the level that you thrive at. And then the third piece, and it kind of speaks to what your friend also mentioned to you, is that um, there's this thing called moral injury where if we're engaging in work that violates at a core level, 
our sense of values or rightness, it, we can actually experience psychological pain in that job. So one of the things that really surprised me was um, learning that veterinarians have one of the highest suicide rates mm. of any career. And if you think about it, you know, much like healthcare workers, and we saw mental health get really strained in the pandemic, is this moral injury. Healthcare workers experienced moral injury during the pandemic because they didn't have enough tools to save people's lives. And they were having to make some really tough decisions um, during the, the real height of the pandemic, decisions that violated their, their, their sense of what's right. Um, this happens a lot with veterinarians because they oftentimes are asked to put to sleep perfectly healthy animals and, and, and listen to what the owner wants when they realize the animal could be, you know, saved or the treatment could be there. They oftentimes also have to, you know, euthanize a patient that they have known for years and no doctor has to do that. Right. So I, I was really surprised to kind of hear more about, we see this in the military too. So I want to just say burnout has these elements of it that people need to pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely. That veterinarian uh, stat is super interesting. And, um, you know, I, I have uh, somebody close to me that's dealing with, uh, you know, an animal situation and their you know, owners are so emotional on top of all everything you're saying. And to your point, it does come down to uh, it just hit me when you're talking about it. Because I've had to put a dog down to sleep and it was pretty emotional. Was, I had it from 10 years, but dogs can't tell you what's wrong with them either. So it's like you have to, you have to find it. You have to see it. And so, man, that work is really hard. And, you know, healthcare is, is hard too. I'm not suggesting it's not, right. but when you have, uh, when you have, you know, when you have an animal that can't tell you like what's hurting and where, I mean, it, it that makes it much more hard. And then, you know, then you got to balance to your point, the, uh, how much, you know, can this person afford? Right. Before, you know, but that's, that's a interesting, interesting fact. Um, so to your other question about the, the benefits, let me dig in a little bit. I write yeah. entire chapters here because the, the, re, the studies were phenomenal and I couldn't stop talking about how great it was. Um, so when you have purpose in life, you get neural protection. So risk of stroke goes down, cognitive decline goes down, depression goes down, anxiety goes down. We also have physical health protection. So heart heart attacks go down. Um, people heal faster, like literally their inflammatory response or healing response is stronger. We literally see longer lives, like people live longer and purpose is seen as kind of this buffer against mortality. Um, we also see... Uh, greater engagement with health supportive behaviors. So when people have purpose in their life, they're more likely to take their medicines, exercise, get to the doctor for their screenings. And then there was a whole section of data on community protection. So for example, um, people who are moving through rehabilitation of some kind, whether they've, they're coming out of um, uh, incarceration or they're dealing with a drug or alcohol addiction, if they tap into a sense of purpose, much greater re rehabilitation. We see people with a sense of purpose are much more accepting of diversity and comfortable with people who are different from themselves. We also see um, that purpose can help us through tragedy and loss, right? Like when all happiness is gone and everything is awful, purpose is what we can dig into and hold on to. 
And many people who've lived through tragedies actually find their sense of purpose in that tragedy. So when you think about a lot of parents who've lost their children in school shootings, for example, so many of them become activists in the gun lobby and and working on having um, more appropriate gun regulations because that has turned into a deep and meaningful purpose for them. Oh man, that's uh, thank you for sharing that. So uh, so much there. So we could t- we could probably talk for an hour just on that topic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Talk about like, this is something that I've always been interested in because we, you know, because of the work that we're in, but talk about how you kind of talk about in the book and just how you're, you see, uh, how you evaluate or assess whether our work is meaningful or not. Because I think a lot of people, they kind of get it, but they like, they want to put it, you know, they want to kind of put it to work for themselves. And so talk about that. Talk about the ways that, you know, and obviously I've I've had the pleasure of reading the book. So there's some... (laughs) awesome stuff in there. But at a high level, talk about how you would uh, kind of point people in the right direction. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, the reason why this matters is because we spend a third of our lives at work, right? Other than sleeping, it's the next biggest chunk of our time as adults. So of course, if you want to have purpose in life or a meaningful life, a lot of people are like, that has to happen in the workplace too, because it's where I spend so much of my time. You know, you can kind of think of the continuum from meaningless to meaningful. And kind of figure out where you're on, you know, not every day is going to be 100% full of meaningfulness, right? There's going to be some tasks that you do are meaningless. But what I thought was really interesting in the research is that there's kind of three categories we can think of. The first is meaning of work. So this is kind of how you conceive the overall concept of work, very much influenced by your parents and teachers and how they talked about working. If your parents were, you know, work is always going to suck and it's just an ends, you know, means to an end, you got raised with those messages about work. And if other people talked about work is so meaningful and I get to connect with really great people and do stuff that I love, you're going to have a different meaning of work. Then there's meaning in work, which is how meaningful work is to you specifically. That's going to be unique to each of us. So, you know, Max, I can tell you find a lot of meaning in your work and that's why you do it. And but then the third category also matters, which is meaning at work, which is now how are you doing in that particular job at that particular organization? And this is where people can have some disconnects. And what we saw kind of shifting in the pandemic is that you're like, I like this type of work. It has been meaningful to me, but now it's not working here. And so I need to find a different organization or I like the general tone of this topic or this field that I work in. But this specific thing I'm doing is not the right match. I got to make a lateral move or play with what kind of jobs I'm applying for. And I think what, you know, what drove the great resignation is everyone had a lot of time on their hands to think about, huh, how do I feel about work? Um, And then, of course, burnout made people feel less excited about jobs they used to like. So all of us kind of got influenced by just being burned out um, simply because the pandemic itself was a heavy emotional journey and it was burning us out just because it was so intense and so dark for so long. Yeah, absolutely. You touched on a lot of things. I think when we talk about, uh, we started Y Scouts in 2012 and what we noticed was people my age, so I'm 48 for full disclosure, but people my age, uh, you know, they had for the most part parents that worked really hard and lost, you know, lost a, a good sum of their 401ks. 
And yep. so just that, I think that changed at least in, from my vision and the people that I know, it kind of changed, uh, again, this, this is like an event that changed how you view things and helped you find more purpose and meaning. And I think a lot of people that saw that happen, they just said, Hey, I'm not going to, but again, I'm not speaking for everybody, but I'm not going to be like my parents who hated their work and, you know, kind of, uh, complained and just put up with it. And then, you know, lost basically half of their net worth, uh, you know, during the downturn. So I think that, that, you know, there are some things that helped reframe. And then, you know, we always talk about Y Scouts, there are some significant events. And obviously, the pandemic is another one of those that really reshaped and uh, what a time, what a timely time to write this book and fold that in because that's, you know, as significant uh, as the these other events. Uh, so you mentioned uh, paradoxes and purpose. So yeah. talk about paradoxes and purpose, because I think, you know, it's important for people to understand those as well, especially the people that may think that they may have found their purpose and maybe they, they kind of fall off, you know, kind of fall to the wayside a little bit. So they kind of understand why that might be. Yeah. So there's a few paradoxes. I'm going to tell you there's five of them. So you've already lived them. It's just now when we kind of articulate them, you're like, oh yeah. So the first one is, well, you know, what we define um, as meaningful is deeply personal to each of us. And yet it's shaped by others. So as particularly as adults, we know what we find meaningful, but it was shaped by our parents, right? Think about those messages when you came home and you're like, I'm going to be an artist when they were grow up. And they were like, no, you're not. That's dumb. Or you went to school and you loved art, but the teachers told you you weren't good at it. Or in your first job, you thought you were great. You got a horrible performance review. So we sometimes have an internal um, compass that's pointing us toward our purpose, but it very much gets shaped by the opinions of the people around us, particularly in our younger years. Um, the second paradox is that we're all on this journey to kind of find meaningful lives and achieve our potential. And yet it, it really requires the help of others to make it happen. So even if you like find the perfect job at the perfect company, you got to have a good boss. You got to have coworkers that you can lean on. And so it's never a hundred percent a solo journey and so inevitably, it gets impacted by those around you. Um, that's related to, to how much leaders control the conditions, right? Like you could work at a company that seems awesome, and then your leaders are engaging in really problematic behavior, or they make choices that really damage the product or damage the culture. And so leaders of organizations have a lot of influence Um that can shape our ability to feel pride in our work. People want to feel pride in their work. They want to feel like they're contributing to something good. And so that's another one of the paradoxes. Um, the fourth one, it's funny, there was a lot of articles, scholarly research that talked about the dark side of purpose. And there's a couple here that have to do with that. One is that when you're really hooked into purpose and, and it seems so just overwhelmingly important to you, it can, it can drive people to harmful excesses, meaning they overwork. They never take a break. They never step away. And this is particularly true when you're in those kind of serious situations where you're saving lives or caring for a marginalized community. It's, it, it means that folks have a hard time maintaining boundaries, healthy boundaries with their work. And so they can burn themselves out. And that's also where they can kind of get set up for moral injury too. And then the last one is, you know, we can have a sense of purpose in our life and yet it's going to ebb and flow over time. And sometimes people 
aren't quite ready to see that. It's like, oh, if I find my sense of purpose, it's going to be just awesome from there that moment on. And it's not. It's going to go through ups and downs. Some days you're going to feel connected to it. Other other times you're going to go through a period where you're like, eh, I don't know. And then you kind of have to assess, is this a sign that I should change my job? Is this a sign that I'm just tired or I'm just going through one of those lulls? Or is it a sign that, yeah, I really need to, to make a shift here? So those are the paradoxes that kind of came up in the data that we all will experience. Even when you find your purpose, it's not all sunshine and rainbows from that moment forward. So interesting. So interesting. What you meant, you also mentioned some myths about yeah. uh, people that believe that they believe about purpose. Talk about those. I think those kind of, kind of tie into this as well. Yeah, I mean, some common ones, and I hit a couple of them already, was that it, it's only purpose if it's some serious worthy cause, right? Um, and, and that leads to us sometimes believing that only certain types of work count. But a lot of frontline workers who do what others would perceive as kind of low level or administrative tasks can have a deep sense of meaning. You know, you can take a bus driver and if they are tied into the purpose of I am here to help people get where they're going and I play a vital role in the success of every one of these people's lives, that bus driver is going to have a sense of meaning in their work. But somebody else might go, a bus driver, that that can't be meaningful. So, you know, we can sometimes have these perceptions. Um, I think another big myth is that uh, you can only really afford to focus on your purpose once you take care of getting the bills paid and raising your kids when when really it's okay to lean into what gives you purpose and meaning at any stage of your life. Um, I think another myth is that um, once you find your purpose, it's going to be easy. And no, per, you know, sometimes living your purpose is hard. It's frustrating. Um, the, you might have a deep sense of satisfaction, but you're not getting those immediate happy rewards. It's, it's the long, it's the long game. Right. Um and then also, I would say a big one is people often use the phrase, if you follow your passion, that'll lead you to your purpose. Not always. Passion is a big emotion. Passion overtakes you. Um, and, and passion can be an important piece of information, but it's not always the sign that that's our purpose. So I, I do a lot of um, exercises in the book so people can journal and kind of use some of these prompts to figure stuff out for themselves. But I think this notion that if you follow your passion, then you're on your purpose is not necessarily true. Got it. Yeah. You know, one of the uh, examples that sticks out of me used the school bus driver, but it's the, uh, the well-known uh, janitor at NASA when they ask him yes. what he's doing and, you know, he's sweeping the floor and he's getting man to space back before uh, we, we got to the moon. Um, but so that, that always sticks out at me. Um what does it look like when somebody, someone is fulfilling the potential? Um, and then how can you encourage and, and challenge other, others to do so? Mm, that's a great question. You know, the thing about potential is that it is part of our DNA to learn and grow. We're supposed to learn and grow. And we struggle when we're not environments that support that. But the other thing about potential is it is a moving target. So, Max, if you set for yourself a goal that you really wanted to improve or grow or, or get better at something in the, in this next year and you worked on it, it would be fulfilling and it you would give you satisfaction. But next year you would achieve it and you'd celebrate it for a hot minute and then you'd be hungering for the next level. So 
it's a little bit of a moving target. We're going to go through phases where we work towards something, we get there, and then we need to set the next journey for ourselves. Um, so I think that's really important. I think sometimes we can, uh, you know, not realize that it's a, it's a journey. And so it's a lifelong journey, right? And then the other thing about, you know, good managers and good leaders, they can sometimes see our potential better than we can. And the, and the best ones will push you to your growing edge. They'll, they'll push you beyond your comfort zone because they can see you're capable of it, but you might not have confidence in yourself. So there's a real art to helping people achieve their potential. I think the last thing I would say, and this is Brene Brown's research, but sometimes what can get in the way, she calls them shame gremlins in that we kind of all have these two shame gremlins in our voices. And I have these two. One is, um, uh, you're not good enough, right? So let's say you wanted to write a book and you're like, I'm not good enough. I couldn't do that. And and you think of all the reasons why. Well, if you talk it out of that one, the next one that will crop up, let's say you're, you dig in and you start to work on your book, the next shame gremlin will be, who do you think you are? So mm-hmm. even if you talk yourself out of not good enough, then this other one is like, oh, so you think you're fancy now. You think someone would want to read your work. Who do you think you are? And I have heard those voices in my head it's so many times in my own career in life. I'm so glad she named them because now when I hear them, I go, oh, you're just a shame gremlin. And I don't hear it as the truth. But I think a lot of people get held back by those voices popping up. Um, and it can really get in the way of, of people achieving their potential. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the concept of achieving your uh, potential is so important uh, because I think most people you know, they can define their potential. It's, it's, it's such a, uh, in, it's such a customized thing. And, uh, you know, for somebody like myself, and I'm sure a lot of people out there that are listening are like this, um, there is an assessment out there by the Y Institute. I should actually introduce you to, uh, Gary Sanchez and see if you can validate some of his work. Uh, it's, it was accurate on me, but he's got, he's got nine different whys. And my why is a better way. And um, that can sometimes be a curse because as soon as I'm accomplished something, and I, my team will probably share this with you. Hopefully, I'm getting better at it with age. But <laughs> I'm I'm looking at a, a, a better way to do something. I will never really give myself the full gratif- gratification of sitting in it and being like, "Look what we did, or look what I did, or look what I accomplished." I'm already moving on to the to the next better way. Uh, so Gary Sanchez's uh, Y Institute, you know, kind of nailed that with me. Um, and like I said, I'd love to make that intro because there's a lot of this, the work that you've done. And uh, I'd love to connect to you. It's a, a tool that you'll take you through and and you can give them your input. And if you like it, you can use it, it for your teachings. Uh, I always uh, love learning new things and seeing other perspectives. So yeah, bring it on. Why? Well, and, and the funny enough, we, we show, I show up at a, a it's called genius network. It's a mastermind group. And I sit next to this guy and I'm like, so what do you do? He's like, Oh, I built a, you know, I I built a company called the Y Institute. I help people discover their why he met Simon Sinek back in the day, read the book, loved it, but there was nothing. He couldn't find anybody, anything to help him find his why. So Mm. that I, I can't wait to introduce you guys. So we've, we've, uh, spent a lot of time. I've been on his podcast. He's been on this podcast. Um, so really great stuff. You know, in your book, Wired to Become, which by the way, if you're listening to this, I'll tell you again, uh, it was, it, it just was released May 21st. So just a couple of weeks ago, um, you talk about, and you, you mentioned this earlier, 
how different generations define meaningful work. And I, and I, what I want to talk about or have you talk about, um, we've always pointed this out. Like we pointed out one of the, one of the things that's challenging from a purpose and values and organizations is really got to identify as leaders that there are different uh, generations working together and you got to get them to kind of see, you know, things the same way. But I think this is a unique way to, to understand that as a leader is how does each generation typically from the research, um, you know, see meaningful work based on, you know, who they are. So from, you know, from Gen Z to millennials to Gen X, like just talking that through to baby boomers, um, talk about like how it's in general, or you can get specific, how it's um, kind of evolved uh, from, you know, let's go back to, you know, baby boomers and, and probably forward and, and just you know, give us the kind of the high level of what's changed just so as we as leaders, we can understand how to communicate and how to understand where these these folks are coming from. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that I highlight from the research is that the generations oftentimes perceive each other as less aligned than they actually are. So, uh, you know, the older generation will perceive the younger generation. They just want to get a quick raise and make a lot of money. And then the younger generation will perceive the older generation as they only care about, you know, success and not other people. And so what's really interesting is that they actually share a commitment to or being of service to others and that that's really a core part of their purpose. So I think a lot of it is around us focusing on that and, and getting past kind of this false narrative that we're not so aligned because when you, there's a, a study that I cite that took kind of what are the top three or four meanings of work uh, for, so for boomers uh, reaching personal goals, success and helping others mm. is what are top three Gen X working with good people, pursuing individual goals and finding that work-life balance for millennials. It was serving others, seeing lives improved personal happiness and having nice coworkers. And for Zen G, uh, Gen Z, sorry, Gen Z, <laughs> um, purpose, values driven work cultures, serving others in the social good, and their top two issues are equality and environment. So mm -hmm. every single generation has some kind of focus on caring for others. Now we've all lived through different environments, right? So us Gen Xers, you know, we had kind of a rough a rough time there. We were thrown to the wolves as latchkey children and had to fend for ourselves and had uh, a very different relationship to media than the younger generations do. But at our core as a species, we care about helping others. It's part of our DNA. And I think now what the pandemic has done, one of the blessings of the pandemic is it has allowed that shared conversation to rise and get some big momentum. So I really think the workplace of the future is a purpose-driven workplace that is doing significant and visible social good. And both customers and employees are not going to work for or buy from organizations that are not doing those things. So my message to leaders is like, this train is already moving. It is biologically driven. It has been accelerated by the pandemic and you better get on board or your company is going to close its doors in less than 10 years. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. The message. That's interesting. I, I think, uh, you know, pulling from that, just the, I love how you went to the similarities versus the differences in, you know, there are some nuances obviously. And, and I think for people that, you know, know people in these different generations, they can understand it, but I love, you know, it, it all is in line with, 
back to the, the most sustainable happiness is you know giving to others or, or serving others um uh, and so that's kind of the tie-in you know when you look at all these generations which isn't surprising if you read through you know all the stuff that you've done research on and uh, so it's it's really a, a great way to talk about these different generations. Now, one thing that I loved about uh, your book, uh, Wired to Become, that was just released is um, it was filled with stories from people around the world, which was, it was a great reading experience, by the way. You're reading, you know, you're, and then you, you get into this story. Just it felt it felt you just fly through the book, in my opinion, about these stories. Is there anything like, first of all, why did you include to include, why did you choose to include personal stories and were there any common themes? And then I've got a follow up question, but why, why don't we start with that? Yeah. I mean, uh, my own doctoral work when I was doing research back in the day, I always really loved to do a quantitative and a qualitative mix because I think, you know, we can certainly look at statistics and, and percentages and all that. But I also think that when you hear people tell their stories, you can kind of do a content analysis of it and figure out what are the common themes here? What, what's showing up? And so I wanted to include stories. It's something I've done in my other books. I think it can just bring alive some of the concepts. You know, not everybody wants to hear my perspective of things. So it's nice to bring in other voices. So when I did the call for stories, I was so thrilled to see stories come in from literally all around the world, every age group, a wide range of industries. Um, and it and and then I did a quick content analysis, and what I saw was like, oh, yep, the themes that I'm hearing in the research are very much the themes that were alive in these folks' lives and their personal stories. And so, um, I ended up with 26 stories, and I was able to place every single story in a section of the book that really, you know, I talked about what the research was saying, and then all of a sudden there was this story that kind of brought it to life. So it ended up being a really nice marriage of the quantitative and the qualitative way of looking at things. Um, in terms of stories that stood out to me, I mean, I, the, the story I put in the introduction, um, gosh, it still gets me a little emotional. So this person wrote in and has uh, found early in their career a real commitment to doing um, fundraising work and, and connecting people who want to give with causes that need support and had worked for an organization. And then the shooting, the school shooting at Uvalde, Texas happened. And this person went to that school when they were a child. They went to that very school and found themselves, their organization was the one that processed the thousands and thousands of donations that poured in over the months as people, you know, all of our hearts were touched by this tragedy. And just them sharing about kind of this full circle moment for themselves to be able to take their career of doing this kind of work and using it to help their own hometown. Um, another story was a gentleman who had found his purpose, was going to go into construction, super excited, and then was in a motorcycle crash and became paralyzed. And through his own healing journey and being supported by other people who helped him reframe his life and find a way to, uh, you know, find the blessings in this tragedy, his now purpose, he is now one of those people who does that for others. He is he is a coach and a mentor to people who are newly paralyzed and helping them make this transition from this tragedy that you have to rethink and reformulate your entire life. Um, and the third one I'll share was uh, this person who at a very young age knew they wanted to be a teacher, but heard the messages from the world, oh, you won't make much money at that. That's that's not a good career. So then had a very successful career in finances and went into 
working in some of the big international markets in Europe um, and hated it, hated it. And the whole time just kept thinking I should have been a teacher. I thought it should have been a teacher. And then finally decided, you know what, I'm going to go be a teacher. And now it's just completely satisfied and very happy with where they are, but realized they had to do a deck, you know, more than a decade of following other people's dreams, not their own. And I thought that really re- could resonate for a lot of folks who end up taking that exact same path. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those were, uh, those all came back to me as you told me too. That was awesome, awesome stories. And did you, was the call out, did you just send it out? Like how, what was the means that you sent it out? Like how did you get it out and, and get those stories? Cause they were amazing. Oh, thank you. I mean, we literally did public postings. You know, I have a whole list of followers. So we put it out there. We put public postings on um, LinkedIn. We, we, we sent it out in a variety of ways. I mentioned it at every speaking engagement I had over a period of time. And so we just did an open call. What was really cool is what we found that people submitted a story and then they were like, I've emailed this to a whole bunch of people. And so we got this widening and widening circle of people submitting their stories. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, what the question that I, that will be, I guess, uh, a lot of people enjoy a lot of listeners out there uh, just based on the content and, and types of guests we've had in the past. What can managers do to create more managers and leaders to create more meaning and purpose for their employees? You know, for us, so let's talk first about managers who kind of have that day-to-day experience with their employees. Um, two things. It turns out that workplace relationships is really a cornerstone of what makes work meaningful. So making sure that people have positive team environments that you're giving your folks a chance to get to know each other and socialize with each other. Because when we are connected emotionally to our teammates, um, we enjoy going to work more. So I think it's kind of leaning into that. Um, Some other things managers can do is just be a better conduit of like, what is the purpose of our organization? What good are we trying to do in the world? What is the purpose of our team or even this project Um, is, is doing a better job communicating those things. I think a great way to do that is to find like customer success stories where you get to hear the stories of, of the work that you're, that, that is being done by your organization in the world. Um, another thing is to get to know your people. You know, all of us have a sense of what is meaningful to us, but very rarely does our boss ask us. And when we're asked that question, we can say, Oh, you know, I really love X, Y, or Z. And as a manager myself, when I ask people those questions, all of a sudden I realize, Oh, if that's true for Bob and that's true for Maria and that's true for Sam, if I just tweak their job descriptions a little bit, I can make their jobs a better match for who they are and what they want. So it's also about, you know, getting to know your people um, and then also supporting them. You know, like if they have a dream someday to own their own business, well, how can you help support that dream? How can you use the job they're doing now to coach and develop them so they can eventually go do that? They'll stay longer and perform better while they're with you. They're not going to run out the door. And on top of it, they're going to always be grateful for that kind of mentoring and coaching. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the thing uh, that sticks out the most, because this is something that I'm focusing on, and I have a lot of clients that ask about this, uh, because I think the pandemic has elevated people's awareness of like what purposeful work really is. And, And so you're having to be a little... We're having to be a little bit more crafty, but I think at the foundation, what people really want is connection. Um, and, you know, one thing that uh, last week I was actually with BJ Fogg, uh, the Stanford um, 
professor and and I was talking to him about hey, how do we how have we had how do you get people to connect better because he's obviously knows that space very well. He told me about a class he had where he had the class have their parents and another student and another student's parents, so the, the parent and the students get on a Zoom call and talk to one another and then talk about that experience. And none of them really wanted to do it, but the result was amazing. And I came back. I'm just sharing this for anybody that is having the same challenge. I'm definitely going to incorporate that. Now, obviously, you don't want to make people that maybe don't have parents around anymore. So it's a family member. So maybe, you know, what I'm thinking is we have uh, family members interviewed about the employee so we can kind of learn their perspective about the employee and they ask questions and hopefully they'll let us record them and, and play them for the company. And I think that's just a great way for to connection. And, and I think a lot of people are searching for that now. Um, and of course, that's a, that that is... I won't call it easy, but it's the most sought after right now due to the you know nature of our flexible you know work schedules. Um, and then you talk you know when we started Y Scouts in 2012, we were talking about aligning people on purpose and values in the workplace, and um, you know we've got a process for it. And I remember most people were nodding their head, and of course, if I was at Conscious Capitalism or someplace where you know people really understood and believed in it. It, it was uh, an easier conversation, but most people are nodding their head. And this was back in 2012. And then when it came to actually doing it, they, you know, kind of were like not ready for it. Um, so I think, you know, from our perspective, and you, you know, you have a lot more research to back this up, we kind of feel like, you know, kind of 2014, 15, like everybody kind of agreed it, professionally that purpose did matter and that people were going to, you know, work on purpose, they were going to buy on purpose. And so, you know, that stuff, it started to become more normal and then people kind of accepted why we were doing this. But for that, for us, it, that seemed like a long time. But uh, talk about, you know, when you think it'll officially become the norm and, and then what are the benefits um, uh, for leaders to shift their organizations in order to set this up, this up to become the permanent norm? Yeah, I mean, I would highlight the research of Aaron Hurst, who talked about the shift to the purpose economy. Um, Frederick Leloux, who wrote uh, Reinventing Organizations, there's a whole bunch of data about human consciousness is rising. And we are continuing to rise through levels where we want to be more connected, more supportive of each other. And we expect that in our organizations. And then the third researcher is Raj Sisodia. He wrote back in the day, Firms of Endearment and Conscious Capitalism, but he has two new books out, The Healing Organization, and I'm going to completely blank on the other one. Um, it literally just came out. Oh, where is that? Um, and I really think that, the, you know, this research that they're doing reinforces each other as well as really confirms like we are moving into a new reality move going forward. And, and that's kind of why I wanted to write this book was to pull all these data points so people could go, Oh yeah, it is happening. And it's, I see evidence of all around me and yeah, it's not going to go back to the way it was. So to me, it's really clear. Um, but the cool thing is the benefits of becoming a purpose-driven organization are many. You know, uh, it's very clear that stock prices go up, profitability goes up, productivity goes up, um, your relationship with your community improves, you've got better relationships with your employees, they're going to work harder and be more loyal. 
your customers are going to be more loyal and be brand ambassadors. I mean, there's really no downside to it, but it does take work. And so I actually spend quite, uh, quite a bit of time in the book with hands-on strategies um, that executives can use to make their organization more purpose-driven. And then I've got a whole section for managers on how they can create, create that in the day-to-day. And I even have a section for those of you seeking jobs so that you can find a better match for yourself and know when you're, you're stepping into the right organization for you. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely going to pay off in the long run, but it does require some work and a change of perspective. But there's also a lot of organizations that have paved the way and you can be learning from them as you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Raj Sasodia's uh, newest book is called Awaken. Yes, thank you. Yeah, Awaken just came to me as well. Love Raj. I used to go sit. I mean, I probably attended uh, probably seven uh, CEO Conscious Capitalism events. And I more than one time went and saw like he always does like the entry level session for newcomers. And like I was like it was I'd go watch him just because it was fun to hear him talk about it. He's so elegant in the way he paints the picture of why purpose matters. And Firms of Endearment, Endearment obviously focuses on true uh, performance of companies that were focused, you know, more on purpose than, you know, the, the, uh, a couple other groups. But when you think about purpose for you, personal purpose, what do you believe your purpose is currently, your purpose in life is currently? Well, I really believe in helping people and organizations rise to their potential. That's not just my tagline. It's been kind of the core of who I am ever since I was younger. Um, how I accomplish that is bringing science-based uh, tools and training and strategies to organizations. And I really believe that, you know, we, we're, we have to change how work is done on this planet. We have to change how business is done. And, and uh, that's where we're really going to create the, the, the world we want to live in. So for me, when I was like, where do I want to focus my work? I was very intentional about choosing the world of business because I felt like it was the one that needed some support. Um, and I also knew that bringing a data-based approach and speaking the language of business was something that I could do and, and, and really make a, a, a strong contributions to the conversation. What I'm excited about is that as hard as this last few years has been, I feel more energized and excited than ever that we are accelerating this path forward, that it's becoming a much easier conversation and not like, wait, what? Um, and now everyone has a real lived experience that that unites us all. You know, we are more united now, even though the news may tell us otherwise, we are actually more united now around the world than we ever have been. And I want to continue to build on that. Absolutely. I think... Uh... I just quit watching the news, which was what my fix, not suggesting that might be for everybody, or maybe go find something that's more right down the middle. Uh, what do you, you know, this is kind of self-serving, but hopefully the audience will like to hear how you answer this as well. I get your thoughts. I'd love to hear the best way, because I, I have a way that I've done it. And hopefully I'm going to learn something here as we talk. And I, of course, I've learned some, a lot from the book, but what? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the best way to align personal purpose with organizational purpose. You know, it's a great question. So both of those parties, right, the executives, the leaders, and the individuals have to get some clarity for themselves. So um, it's part of why I put a lot of exercises in the book. It's like, what are your what are your core values? You know, what are the things that bring you the most meaning? What are some lessons you've learned over your life? Um, when we have that clarity, 
then we can bring that language and that intentionality to the conversation. Um, executives, some of them are really good at articulating uh, an inspiring vision and articulating the why and, and making it easy for people to see it. And other leaders are not good at that. And so one of the things I work with leaders about is um, oftentimes they can get a little blind to the experience of the folks below them because it's clear to them. They're, they're seeing some of this future-focused data on a regular basis. But unless they are good at crafting and telling that story and also really listening to their employees, when there starts to be a disconnect between what you believe your company is about and what your employees are telling you they're experiencing, you got to step in and solve that. And, you know, again, today's employee is much more empowered to vote with their feet and find a better match. So, you know, it will self-correct. The, the leaders who are not listening will lose their employees and they'll lose their customers and they'll eventually shut down. Um, but there's a real opportunity right now for leaders to really, really take this conversation seriously and lean into, okay, I need to make sure I'm good at this. I need to make sure I can articulate this. I need to make sure I'm listening and responding. Yeah. And I think uh, how transparent the world has become. Yeah. There once was a time when people could market like, you know, Coca-Cola and Pepsi with the Olympics, these athletes would be drinking sugary drinks and uh, I don't know why I'm picking on them. I'm not necessarily meaning to, but I think that there's this transparency with marketing and employment brand and the consistency between the two, you know, people, like you said, they will, uh, they will vote with their feet, both from the employees and from the people that are, you know, buying their products now. So I think it's the bar has been raised and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, kind of put up or shut up in, in my opinion, but I'm obviously been living in this for, uh, for a while. I've got a bunch, I've got a bunch more questions. So I'm going to kind of just like scan and kind of feel where, where, you know, kind of what I want to uh, pull out of you, but I, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been amazing. I kind of knew it was going to go this direction where I was going to have to think through like what I wanted to ask and uh, how much time we had, but talk about uh, kind of along these same lines. These are things that come up regularly for us in questions that our clients ask a lot. So uh, selfishly, I'm learning uh, some new talk tracks and making sure that we're telling them the right things, quite honestly, because you've done a little bit more research. But um, in the hiring world, we always talk about purpose and values. We lump those together. And you alluded to it earlier. Um, and I had the pleasure, we had the pleasure of having Ann Rhodes on our advisory board, who's the chief people officer of Southwest Airlines, very involved in conscious capitalism. She obviously understands values very much. She was very proud of us. We presented her our business plan as a purpose-based leadership search firm. And she was so excited. She's like, values was, you know, kind of the, you know, kind of last decade. I think this is going to be the purpose decade. This was her, you know, back in 2010. And I think to some degree, she's been absolutely right. But if you talk about the the interplay of purpose and values, because uh, I think people lump them together a lot and you'd like to see where there are some similarities and where there's some differences. Yeah. So, I mean, when I shared the definition a little bit earlier, purpose emerges from our core values. So, you know, your core values, and you can have a lot of values, but I like to, I, I take people through an exercise where they get down to kind of their top number. Um, because those really shape how you think, act, and feel on a regular basis. And inevitably, your sense of what is meaningful to you, what you, what you pull a sense of purpose from is going to come from those values. So it's really kind of the first step in getting clear for yourself so that you can find the right thing that will give you purpose or 
how to find meaningful work for yourself. They're absolutely connected, but they grow out of our values. The only other thing that I would say is that, you know, when we're a child, the values that we have are given to us by our family of origin. And so there's a period of time as you leave the nest and become, a, a, you know, a functioning adults in the world that you may, you may be tinkering with those values and realizing, huh, I'm kind of different from my family. I am actually going to retool these to be what's true for me. Um, but once you get kind of that, that set that works for you and you know matters, um, that really becomes the, the guiding star that's going to help you find these other things. Nothing that, that you're going to find meaningful or purposeful is going to violate your core values. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I love that. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And then, you know, the other thing I, I want to make sure to cover before, uh, unfortunately, we're going to start uh, start segueing off here again, just because we're running a little long. But um, maybe we can do this again, because there's a lot of other stuff I want to talk about. Um Talk about your, so talk about your, what you've done professionally. Cause I think most of the time I kind of start with that, but I really wanted to make sure we got through a lot of this. I'm glad I did, but you know, just, I kind of want the audience to kind of understand, you know, where all this research came from and, you know, kind of where the practice came from. Uh, Cause I think that'll be important for people to understand. And then, um, and then I'll start with that. And then I've got another follow-up question. Okay. <laughs> um, so I tell I talk a lot about my own story in the book, so people will be able to read more about it. But you know, my own my own journey, I, you know, I grew up in a not healthy household, moved a lot when I was a kid, had to to be in survival mode a lot, went off to college. And that was really the first time I got to have a sense of identity or safety that was um, my own to craft. And so I spent quite a bit of time in higher ed, working in higher ed, staying in higher ed and building programs for other young adults to kind of have a more successful transition as they moved into adulthood. Um, and that was really meaningful for me. I did that work for 20 years and I built a lot of these kinds of things into it. I really wanted to ask young people, like, what do you care about? What is meaningful to you? Just because your family says this doesn't necessarily mean it's true for you. And, and what do you, what kind of work do you want to do? Um, and then there was a point in time when I got I felt like I've kind of done what I need to do with this environment. I built very well-respected leadership development programs. We won a bunch of awards. It was great. But I realized, huh, I, I, this working with this 18 to 22 year old population, I feel like I'm pretty complete around that. So that was when I jumped, um, from higher ed into lynda.com and realized leadership development and helping people grow and beat their best selves was really the core thread to me. And so started doing that. And then a lot of my courses ended up in the Linda library and companies all around the world are saying, Oh my gosh, this really resonates. I've always got brought kind of a science perspective to things and adding the brain science or the neuroscience to it was kind of the secret sauce I was adding. Um, and then it just kind of grew from there. I was really successful at Linda and I loved the work I did and, and we went through the acquisition. And then at that point in time, I had so many clients coming. It was, I got to jump and start my own business without really feeling like I was taking a risk because I had, I had, you know, clients right at the door. Um, and then it's just been deeply meaningful to me because, um, I hear every day, like on LinkedIn, every day I get a message from someone who has seen one of my courses or written one of my books and how it has helped them or improved their life or made a change. Um, 
And so that, you know, I feel very lucky that I get to do work that I love, but then it also, you know, I get to see the results of it and hear the results of it. Um, And so I continue to follow my interests. You know, I I research and write books on topics that I see unfolding. I love to geek out on it, man. Like writing that book is so fun when I get to dig in. But there's also a part of me that loves being on stage. So now I'm doing, you know, I feel like a a musician where after you record the album, you get to go on tour. So now I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements. And then I get to weave it into um, tools that organizations can use that really make a difference. So I feel like I get to create some longevity to these ideas. And it's not just like, oh, that was an interesting conversation. I really believe in giving people the tools and the skills so they can make significant changes in their life. And, and then I, you know, we're just blessed to have our clients just tell us again and again, how, how much, you know, it's making a difference, how they're seeing a big shift in behavior and, and all of that. So I feel very fortunate. I also feel like I've been listening to my North star and following my North star. And when it got hard and weird, it was because I was off path a little bit and I needed to get back on path. So I share a lot of that because I really believe that everyone does have a path forward it's not always a straight line and it's not always easy or fun, but um, part of it is starting to look and listen and seeing, seeing what the world is telling you. Cause it's inevitably, I really believe that the universe wants you to find your purpose as much as you do. And so, um, you know, it's, it's helping you out. So it, it was really fun to write the book and uh, also hear stories from people who are on the, have had that same experience. Yeah, awesome. Well, it sounds like, and like I said, I'll start wrapping up, but I, uh, it sounds like you, there wasn't a lot of time between when you sold uh, lynda.com and starting your uh, practice. There was a year. So I want to just be clear. Lynda.com was created by Linda Weinman and uh, Bruce Haven. They were the founders of lynda.com. And I came in and got to serve as chief learning officer. And then the company was acquired by LinkedIn. I was lucky to get a job in that transition. So I worked at LinkedIn in Silicon Valley for a year. But, you know, right before the acquisition happened, I was already starting to think about jumping out and having my own business. I'm glad I did the year at LinkedIn. But at the end of that year, I was like, it's time. You know, the moment is right. So I made the leap and have been loving it ever since. I get to work with some really cool clients around the world. And, and, um, yeah, I feel really, really fortunate with what I get to do. Awesome. Well, the reason why I bring up that point is I have been a YPO and I've seen so many entrepreneurs sell their business and go from this like, you know, huge high to this huge low so fast. And like some of them do okay, but more the majority of them don't do okay for a while. And I just think it's so interesting as they know eyes wide open, you know, they usually it's a big, huge lump sum of money. But to your point, the reason why we're having this conversation is if you don't understand and you go from having a purpose to not, that's a big cliff. So um, it's, your work is incredible. I've uh, enjoyed our time. I hope we can uh, spend some more time uh, in the future. And then obviously I'll bring this up again, but for those of you that may have joined late, um, Wired to Become was just released May 21st. So you can uh, go buy her book and learn a lot more. What an incredible book. References so many pieces of work, including all of the stuff that she's talking about. Um, and then is there anything, uh, BrittAndriata.com is the main site, right? To get a hold of you. Is there any other areas you mentioned LinkedIn? Is that a good place to follow you as well? 
Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, and if you follow me, you'll get you'll get notices of what we're up to. Brit Andriata, my my name is my website, BritAndriata.com, and my company is Brain Aware Training. So if any of you want to bring in brain based training or training that focuses and enlivens purpose in your organization, give us a call. We'd love to help you out. Well, we might be giving you a call to help us co-create some stuff. So thanks again. You've been listening to the Built on Purpose podcast with Max Hansen, brought to you by Wise Scouts. You can find all of our past and future podcasts at wisecouts.com. Thanks again, uh, Dr. Brett. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 wherever you get your podcasts. 